0: Day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look at the top of your notes there. We're in, uh, we're trying to uh, become spiritual preppers, okay, for the second coming, for the big reveal of Jesus Christ. And this chapter one of Revelation uh, is easy to skip through to get to what we often think are the more juicy parts and uh, and all the details of prophecy. And yet this chapter sets us up to be prepared for His coming. And I kind of gave you a a review there. Uh, If you're going to be prepared, you need to check your priorities, use your provisions, know your provider, fulfill your purpose, and then maintain your perspective. We looked at Revelation 1, 9 through 11 last week, and we saw that John had this awesome perspective. I was on the island of Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was in the midst of of persecution in a place I didn't want to be, but the Lord had allowed me to be, and yet I was still worshiping Him. And we learned that prime time will get you through the tough times until the end times. So I hope that you took note of that. Now, in the meantime, here's what we want to learn this morning. Spiritual preppers change their perception. Change your perception until the big reveal. Change your per- perception of who Jesus really is right now. Now, the last time we saw John, he was exiled on the island of Patmos because of his perseverance for Christ in spite of tough times. He's in his 90s, remember? He's the last living apostle. The year is AD 95. And while imprisoned, he was unexpectedly overcome by the Holy Spirit during his quiet time. And he heard a voice like a trumpet trumpet that commanded his attention. Now, can you imagine? And it came from behind him. Now, I, I like to do this, okay? I don't even... It, my wife now is so jumpy. I can just be in the other room and say, Gwen, and she'll jump. I'm like, "You're. I'm a mile away from... I'm not sneaking up on... Is that... No? Yeah, it's true, isn't it? It is true. So I can only imagine. Gwen, can you imagine how John must have jumped, right? He must have jumped. Uh, jumped out of his skin. His heart must have stopped. His hair probably uh, stands up on his head and his head jerks around. The voice is none other than Jesus Christ himself. John's told to record the final wake up call to the churches. Of uh, local churches throughout all the ages, and he's told to write what he saw in a book and to send it to the seven churches. Now what did he write? He wrote Revelation one through twenty two You have in your hands this morning what he wrote, and who was it written to? All the churches throughout the church age until the second coming of Jesus Christ. I like First Thessalonians 4:16. listen, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. There's the noises that John heard. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But before John was told what to write which was Revelation chapter 2 through 22, John saw who the real head of the church is. In other words, John needed to change his perception of who Jesus is now before he could properly understand what the book of Revelation was about. He wasn't going to understand the revelation until he had a change in perception of the one who was revealing it. And this is, uh, many continue to make the same mistake. Many try to understand the book of Revelation without knowing who Christ really is, all right? I mean, after all, how many of you plan on meeting the Antichrist? Good. Good. That's good. That's good. But you know. But then we're like, who's the Antichrist? Is he alive? I mean, we get all enthralled. How many of you plan on meeting Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. Then we need to be focused on Him. And that's exactly what Revelation 1 and these verses 12 through 16. The best preparation to meet Jesus is to change our perception of who He really is today, right now. Our preparation is is often based on our perception of who we are expecting. Who are you expecting? Now, this is so true. We could have so many illustrations of this. Our preparation is based on our perception of who we are expecting. If the president is coming to your house, you're going to prepare in a different way than if just your friend is dropping by. Well, I'm just saying to you this morning, who you think Jesus is will determine, how you perceive him will determine how you prepare for his coming. Therefore, we must see Christ for who he really is in the present if we're going to properly prepare for his big reveal in the future. So, who he is in the present will determine how we prepare for his coming in the future. And so that's what this passage that we're going to look at, Revelation uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. So here's, here's the first and the main thing of this lesson. Cha- number one, change your perception of who Jesus really is. Change your perception. If you want to be prepared for the second coming, change your perception of who Jesus really is. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and let's read verses 12 through 13. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And remember, well, let's jump up to verse 10. Remember, I heard behind me a loud voice, this is verse 10, like the sound of a trumpet. And then drop down to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice. That was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of man. Now, just real quickly, I just want to give you: He heard, he turned, he saw. Now, that's kind of the whole lesson, you know, the real simple, you know, the ones that you know. If you want the real simple part. And then I'm going to give you the crisp part, right? So the real simple part is I heard, I turned, and I saw. It's not enough to hear God's Word taught. Many of you are very regular on hearing God's Word taught. But when we hear the voice of God, we are called to turn. We are called to repent. We are called to make a change. And it's not until we repent that we actually see the One who is speaking to us. That's the essence of this lesson. And I say that because in verse 12, the Bible emphasizes the turning. The turning. Why did He come from behind? And He turned. And it was only He he heard... And then he turned, and then he saw. And really, you know, that's what we just prayed for our young people. That they heard, but didn't just hear. They turned, and they saw Jesus in a way that's going to be permanently life-changing. So let's continue. What did he see? Again, he, told, he saw seven golden lampstands, verse 12. In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is who Jesus is right now, today. And I believe we all need to change our perception. Amen. Now, this vision, the first of seven. Of course, you can all, If anybody ever asks you how many things are in the Book of Revelation, just pretty much guess seven, and you're going to nail it. In the, this is the first of seven visions. It's a revelation of Christ, it's awesome, it's majestic, it's transcendent. It reveals Christ's glorious person with great and striking details. And because human language fails to describe the glory of our God, John struggles to communicate this awesome vision. So he must use vivid imagery to record the vision. And I just pray that God will open our eyes to behold the glorified Christ that we worship and serve. We need to see this like John saw it, and that's why it's recorded. So here we go. Are you ready? Nine ways we need to change our perception of Jesus Christ. Let's begin. Number one, His supreme position and presence. His supreme position and presence. This is in verses 12 and 13. The first thing that captures John's attention is Christ's position. He's standing in the midst of his churches. He's occupying the place of supreme preeminence among the churches. And he's moving about them. He's walking. He's not stationary. He's not a little statue. And we place him on a shelf. He's a living, glorified, risen, walking in the midst of local churches. Churches like ours. John, now what's interesting is, John hears a voice. You've got to catch the little things of the Bible. John hears a voice, and he turns to see the voice, which is interesting terminology in itself. But when he turns to see the voice, the first thing that he sees is not the voice, but what does he see? What's the first thing that he sees? Seven golden lampstands which we're going to see represent the churches. Why is that? The, the reason is, John is telling us, we're in the church age. We're in the age of the local church, and Christ is risen. And we should not expect to see him like John saw him as an apostle. He is seated at the right hand of God, and yet his attention and his focus is among the local churches. And when people if people are going to see Jesus, they're going to see him first through us, through the local church. And so that's why, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're in the church age. And we are the body of Christ. And if people are going to see Him, if they're going to hear of Him, then they're going to see and hear it through us. As we are scattered and as we are gathered. So what are the seven golden lamp stands? Man, I'm telling you what, you can... This could be a nine-week message. We just got to keep moving. Seven golden lampstands. What are the seven golden lampstands? They represent the church and the purpose of the church. They represent the church. The purpose of a lampstand is to hold the light up in a darkened room. We are not the light. We are the light, the lampstand. (coughs) We are not the light... We are the light bulb or the or the lamp holding the light bulb through which the light comes. That's important. Jesus is the light. The gospel is the light. But our purpose is to bear the light in the darkness and to the darkness. And we just prayed about both of those things. At camp, these kids are learning to bear the light and be the light in the darkness. And we go on mission to bear the light to the darkness in places like Salta and Kashi seven represents the fullness and completeness of these churches to represent all churches at all times what Christ was to these seven churches he is to soon to be really is now but we're not talking about it life bridge okay and gold represents the precious value of the church. They are golden lampstands because Christ bought the church with his precious blood. There is nothing more important on this planet to Jesus Christ than the local church. Is that how we value our church? And you say, well, I would if we were a little better church. Well, welcome to the seven churches of Asia who were just as messed up just as imperfect and just as struggling as we are, right? And Christ is in their midst. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have places to grow, things to confess, confess, things to improve like we do. But the reality is this. This church was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and he values it. And we know he values it because he's in the midst of it. He's in the midst. One is like the Son of Man. This takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. We won't go there, but in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a divine figure who would come and be anointed by God's Spirit to set up God's kingdom here on earth in fulfillment to the promises to Israel. It is the Messiah. It is the divine Messiah who also happened to become man, and he's in the midst The supreme presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, in the midst. Ultimately, no church is run by any one man or group of men or group of men and women or by a special interest group or by a denomination or by a fellowship. Ultimately, it's not run by deacon or elders. It's run by Jesus Christ. He's in the midst. He's in the midst of his church. He is the hub, and local churches are the spokes. He is the head, and local churches are the body to express his purpose on this planet. And so he is the focus, he is the king, the leader, and the head. Now, people who see our church should see Christ because people, before they see Christ, will see our church. And our purpose is to hold up the light of the person of Christ So unbelievers can come and see Him in our midst. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, this express purpose is laid out. Paul says, hey, you need to speak with clarity the Word of God because unbelievers need to come and be able to see and fear God in your midst. So there's, there's a mission for us as light to go out during the week, but there's a mission for us to gather and invite the lost to watch as, they, as we glorify God. Now, Christ can and does remove lampstands when they fail to fulfill this purpose, and that's the warning to each of these churches. Christ will... He values the church, but He values it so that it will accomplish His purpose. And when it fails to accomplish His purpose, churches will close. His spirit will be removed, and they may still be big, and they may still gather a crowd but he has removed his presence. And that's something that we never never want to see happen. Second of all, the vision of the Lord of the the vision of the Lord of the church should not only change our perception of his position and presence in our midst, but we should also change our our perception of his sovereign clothing. His sovereign clothing, the very next thing that he sees is what he's wearing. Look at verse 13 again. I saw one like the son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, a, a ro- we don't, you know, we think bathrobe, right? But in that day and age, this would be like wearing a suit. This would be like like the robes of a judge, right? When you're doing something important. And so the robe down to the feet and girded about the sash represents one with great authority. And the fact, here's the the idea. Culturally, the longer your robe, the greater your authority. So it says it was all the way down to his feet. Or think of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the the, uh, preexistent Christ and his train fills... The temple of heaven. Why? Because that's his great authority. He has great authority. The longer the robe, the greater the authority. Now, in the Old Testament, who wore robes? Prophets, priests, and kings wore robes. Prophets, priests, and kings. Because all three of these types of people had authority in the nation of Israel. And Christ is all these things to us. He is a prophet a priest, and a king. In fact, we saw that already in Revelation 1, 5 through 6. In Revelation, he's the prophet who's the faithful witness. He's the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice and became the firstborn of the dead. And he is the king, the future king of kings and lord of lords who's going to reign. And so in this passage, this robe represents... Jesus as prophet, priest, and king with all authority to judge. Yes, I said judge. No, you didn't say judge. You meant love. No, it's authority to judge. And that's what this vision is all about. It's about His authority to judge. Prophets made sure people heard God's standard and lived by it. They were judges. Priests made sure people... Live, uh, people sacrificed and worshipped according to God's standards. They would judge the worthiness of the worshiper. And they would judge the worthiness of their sacrifice. They judged. And kings, well, that's what kings do. They, they rule in order to judge who can enter their kingdom, who is worthy to be in their kingdom, and he rules over his people. But wait a minute. That, what I just shared, is radical. It is radical today. Because what we want to hear, what we think we ought to hear, is that Christ is today in our midst not to judge us, but we too many say He's just here to love us and forgive us. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus with the warm fuzzies. Jesus with all the memes on Facebook, who's always welcoming, always loving, always embracing and yet we see here and we're going to see it in his head his eyes and his feet that he is here to judge his people and to judge the unbelieving and see we have this real this tension of thinking well once i get saved There's therefore now no condemnation. No, there's no condemnation. But God, Jesus, will not tolerate sin among His people. And He will purify His people through judgment. And that's the most loving thing He could ever do. Amen? Because that's the best thing for us. And it's what glorifies Him the most. Now, when did He put this robe on? He lived a perfect life. And he died as a perfect sacrifice, and then he resurrected as the firstborn of the dead. Then and only then did Jesus receive the right to judge. How did Christ put on this robe? He didn't put it on him. The Father put it on him. God the Father bestowed upon his Son the authority to judge and to rule over all things, including the church. And why does he wear this robe? so that he can exercise authority over the kingdom of priests that he has made us to be. Wow. Heavy-duty stuff. Now, how does he judge us? Number three. Number three, change your perception about his sinless character. He judges us according to the standard of God's word and of his own holiness. Change your perception of his sinless character. In verse 14, John moves from the clothing and looks upward to behold the head and hair of Christ. Look at verse 14. His hair and his head, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And so he sees him. And he sees this robe of authority, royal authority, and he looks up to see a crown on his head, and instead of a crown, he sees a head and hair of white as snow. Now, that's not because Jesus is Santa. And that's not because Jesus is a senile old man that just loves us like Grandpa loves us, no matter what we do. You know, it's wonderful, isn't it? Our parents discipline us, but Grandpa and Grandma, they just love us. And that's how many people view Jesus. He's just like a grandpa. He's a big Santa in the sky who really doesn't interfere with our lives and wants us to shape up a little bit and then just is here to bestow gifts upon gifts, love upon love. And yet he looks at his hair and it represents at least three things. Here you go. White represents his sinless righteousness. Jesus is white, hot, holy. Let's say that together. Jesus is white, hot, holy. Let's say that together. Jesus is white, hot, holy. Okay, now let's all say it together. Jesus is white, hot, holy. Okay, I give up. I tried three times. His head and his hair represents his crowning perfection as the Holy One whose judgments are always perfect, just, sinless, pure, and wise. Holiness is the most prominent, attribute of Christ as he exists and lives today among the church. He is holy from the head down to his toes. And holiness means he's separate, he's unique, he's set apart, he's sinless, and he's a cut above us. He's, 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 he, we, he's human. He, but he's God, and he's a sinless human, and he's a holy God. That's who our Jesus is. Therefore, he cannot and will not tolerate any kind of sin in his presence. And that's what we've got to understand. He doesn't tolerate little sins, and he doesn't tolerate big sins. And this is throughout the Bible. What happened to the angels when they, were sin, when they sinned? They were cast out with never an opportunity for redemption or repentance. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? They were cast out and an angel with a flaming sword was set there so that they could not return. When God laid the sins of the world upon His Son, what did God the Father do? He turned away because sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And when people reject Christ today, they will be ultimately cast out of God's presence for all of eternity, according to Revelation 20, in a burning lake of fire and torment for all eternity. This is our God. This is our Jesus. And his white head, though, also in hair represents his reasonableness. His reasonableness in judging the purity of our lives. I believe when John mentions white as snow, he's thinking in his mind, Isaiah 18 through 19. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're going to see the sword of His mouth. My point is this. Jesus judges sin, but He was also the sacrifice for our sin. And so He says, Look, I'm holy. You're not. Come. I will make you clean. I will purify you. But if you remain in your sin," then there is judgment that awaits. Third, the white head and hair represents His requirement for His people. We must be holy as He is holy. And if we're going to make a difference in this world, then we've got to be, listen to me, we've got to be different from the world. Right now, the push is if you want to reach the lost, you've got to be more like them. And you're right, we want to eliminate unnecessary obstacles. But listen to me. If we are just like them in our entertainment, if we're just like them in our speech, if we are just like them in our values and the way we spend our money and the way we spend our time, then we have nothing to offer them. We have nothing to offer them. People are desperate. They won't say this. But think about when you were lost. When I was lost, I was desperate for a different kind of life. I was desperate to see people that knew God. I didn't even know who God was. But I knew people when they knew God. Because I wanted to be around them. I wanted what they wanted. And then they had to tell me, what you want is not me, but God. Wow, we got to be different. we got to be holy. And I'm telling you, it's harder than ever with this technology for everybody in this room. And really, parents, until we get serious about holiness in our own lives, our kids are not going to pursue it in in their lives. And controlling technology is a must, but it's not the ultimate. It's controlling your own desires and your own lusts. You've got to let Jesus, the holiness that he gives us as a free gift, begin to play out in every area of our lives, including our entertainment. And you say, well, how does him up there and me down here, how does he know what I'm doing? Number four, we need to change our perception of his searching gaze, his searching gaze. While peering at Christ's head, he sees his eyes. Look at verse 14. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, flaming searchlights. Are shining out of each each eye, the eyes re- represent his penetrating, penetrating gaze into everything. It, it, it's Superman vision. it's x-ray vision. He can see our hearts. He can read our minds. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That's speaking to believers. That's speaking to believers. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, said this, God not only sees men, He sees through them. Wow. Wow. And those eyes like fire are meant to purify and, if necessary, punish those who sin willingly and knowingly. Look, Jesus is searching this morning. He's searching right here, and he's searching our hearts, and he doesn't just search on Sunday. He searches on Monday he searches in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and you start looking at things you shouldn't look at. He searches those things where we think it, but we don't do them. He's looking for holiness in his people. Listen to the seven, to the seven churches. Here's what he says. To Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. To Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. To Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. See, I know your circumstances. I know, I see it all. And to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds. Listen, He wants them, and He wants us to know this this morning, that when He sees a holiness, He takes note and He rewards. And when He sees sin in our lives, He takes note and He deals with it. How is God dealing with you? How is He rewarding you? But you may be asking, is this really the Jesus who's in our midst? Would he really judge in such a way after dying on the cross, rising from the dead, forgiving us and giving us his righteousness? Is he still really concerned about sin? Well, if you doubt that, then look at his feet and change your perception of his smoldering judgment. His smoldering judgment. Verse 15. He goes from his eyes to his feet because Jesus is holy from his head to his toes. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. It's fiery. From his eyes to his feet, he says he sees red hot feet of fire. Wow. Is, is Jesus serious about judging sin in the church and our lives? What would you say? Yeah. Now, some of you are old enough. Not, well, not very many of you. We're, were young. Uh, Nancy Sinatra saying these boots were made for walking. And, come on, help me out. And they're a walk. Right, yeah, 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 way to go, Katie. Yeah, yeah. We're a little thing. Well, these feet, these feet of Jesus were made for judging. And they're going to walk all over our sin. That's exactly the picture here. That's exactly the picture. The feet of burning brass represents Christ's burning commitment to purify our lives. The picture is uh, drawn from refining metal. To refine metal, you had to heat the furnace red hot. Red hot. And then you put the metal in there and the impurities would rise to the surface and by going through the fire, what would be left was the pure metal. And so again, Christ is doing this out of love. And He's doing it out of a commitment to His people who He bought by His blood to forgive their sins, but not just forgive their sins, but to make us holy as He is holy. Amen? And so He's going to let you go through the fire. He's going to let you go through hard times. He's going to let you... Face the consequences of your sin so that the impurity will rise to the top. Your sin will be exposed. You'll confess. You'll repent. And His forgiveness is there, already granted to you. And you'll be made more pure. Wow. Brass represents judgment. There's no way. The lampstands are gold, but the feet are brass. In the tabernacle, the furniture that was associated with the sin offering was made of brass. The fires that burned on the brass altar represented the burning anger of God against sin. And when Moses lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness, it was to judge the sins of Israel and the people would look at the serpent, look and be forgiven because God said, I have paid the price for your sin or I'm going to pay the price. Jesus judges sin wherever he finds it, but especially in his church. Let me ask you to they have a yard. How many of you hate weeds in your neighbor's yard? Yes. How many hate, but which do you hate more, weeds in your yard or your neighbor's yard? Your own yard, right? Well, yeah. Bill Bill can help you with weeds, by the way. He he hates them in all yards. He wants to clean all weeds of all yards. And his wife wants him to do that as well. But let me say this. Do you hate cancer in your neighbor's family? Or do you hate do you hate cancer in your own family? Well, we hate cancer in anyone's family. But I hate it more in my family. Listen, Jesus is no different. He hates sin in anybody's life, and he's going to deal with it in anyone's life, but he hates it in his own people. Because that's not what he, that is not what he saved them to be. He didn't save us to remain in our sins. Listen to this. Every church is either on fire or in the fire. And that's the fact. Every believer is either on fire for Jesus or you're in the fire of judgment. That brings us to number six. His judgment comes through his strong voice. His strong voice. Verse 15 His voice was like the sound of many waters. Can't you imagine John on this island, surrounded by the ocean, this volcanic rock, and the waves busting against the ocean, the roar of the... How many have heard the roar of the ocean? And even greater than that, many waters, Niagara voice of Jesus. His voice is like the roar. Listen, the church should never be in doubt. Of what Jesus is trying to say. He says it loud. He says it strong. And he says it firm. Number seven. We need to change our perception of his spiritual leaders. Because that strong voice comes through his pastors. And teachers that he gifts to the church. His spiritual leaders are seen in verse 16. In his right hand. Where you would uh, expect the scepter of a king, you have seven stars. Seven stars. Now, later in in chapter 1, we're going to see that those stars are seven angels. But put that in quote, because angels, the word for angels means messengers. And you have to look at the context that will tell you, is it an angelic messenger or a human messenger and i would put forth to you in this context they are the messengers to the churches they are the pastors the teachers they're the men who are relaying the word of god the voice of god the voice of jesus to the church and the seven stars represent those men and they're in the right hand of christ because they have his delegated authority They have strict accountability to teach what he says to teach. And they have special protection. God watches over his pastors, his teachers. Listen, we're never going to be ready for Christ to come back if we aren't in local churches where Christ is present and the word of God is taught through godly pastors and teachers. And we need to understand that they're held in God's right hand And they have his authority, they're under his accountability, and they have his protection. And they prepare us for what is to come. Pray for your pastors, support your pastors, follow them as they follow Christ, and you will be prepared. Number eight, his severe discipline. Number eight, his severe discipline. Verse 16, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Isn't it interesting that the stars are associated with the sword coming out of his mouth? Why? Because the messengers are to preach the word of God. But it's a sword. And this is the big sword of the Roman army that would do battle. Okay? And would judge his enemies. Wow. Everything. The word of God ties together all that we see In this vision. And it's the Word of God, that sharp two-edged sword, that's gonna judge unbelievers in Revelation 19. But before we get to Revelation 19, God judges the church with His Word. Number nine, His shining glory. His shining glory. Look at how it ends. He goes back up to the face. And he says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. How many of you ever looked at the sun? Well, you wouldn't see my hand raised if you had, because you'd be blind. Don't look at the sun. But that's what his face is like. He's saying, look, it's, it's, it's like looking at the sun. I can't look. It's glorious. And what we should all, and I pray by the God spirit that right now you're just thinking glory, glory, glory. This is our our Jesus. Now, right now, in our midst, this is what he's like. Now, here's the bottom line. A change in your perception of Christ leads to a change in your preparation for his coming. And if I could write in one word, what should we do now in light of this message? It's this. Repent. Say that with me. Repent. 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 Turn to your neighbor and say, repent. That's the message. To every one of these churches except two, Jesus Christ says, I know where you're at. Repent. 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 And to the two that he didn't say it, one was, both of them were suffering. One was suffering great tribulation. Persecution, and the other one was persevering with great faithfulness. Do you realize that after Revelation one, uh, Revelation two through three, repent is only used three more times in the Book of Revelation, and every time it's unbelievers who refuse to repent right before the second coming. Right before, listen, repentance is the mark of God's people. You say, but I repented when I got saved. You entered into a life of repentance because this is who we deal with. And he's constantly working in your life. So if you're saying, wow, today was a bummer, a lot of judgment. Yeah, but it's a message of hope because repent. And so what we need to do today is turn. What are you facing? John had to turn, which is a picture of repentance, to focus on Jesus until he came. And I would just ask you today, what what do you need to turn from today? What has blocked you to see Jesus as he really is? Maybe it's false doctrine, as we're going to talk about upstairs. Maybe you've been listening to the wrong preachers, reading the wrong books, reading the wrong blogs that have Jesus who is love without wrath. But all I'm saying to you is whatever you need to turn from Like John, to see Jesus as he really is, that's the best preparation for his coming. And as we're talking upstairs, that's the assurance that you're truly born again. Because truly born again people cannot hear the voice of God and remain in their sin. They cannot hear the voice of God and keep their back to the Holy One who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. You know what? I am incapable of revealing this to you. I'm merely a star in the hand of the one who will reveal himself to you. But I pray that we, we have seen him, and I pray that we will repent, because we all, including myself, have plenty of repentance to do. Amen? And listen, this world needs to see this Jesus as He really is. But our sin obscures their vision. And so let's be lampstands that hold up the light of His glorious grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and we... We bow before your feet of brass, but know that your holiness, that holy hair, that holy head, that crown of righteousness, you have given to us freely through the gospel. We came and gave you our sin, and you died and paid for it on the cross, and you rose and gave us your righteousness. But Lord, now we need to be holy as you are holy. Your spirit, your word, it works in our hearts. And I pray that it's worked today. Purify us as your people. May we be on fire rather than in the fire. In fact, Lord, may we be on fire while we're in the fire of persecution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, read Revelation 1 this week. Just read it. Read it and let Jesus reveal himself to you.